Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Sotah, daf Yadalit, page 14. Well, Ann, when I started reading this daf, it actually reminded me of something that we talked about yesterday, where you mentioned that you thought maybe all of this, uh, this Agadita about Moshe and him being born of a woman was somewhat of an anti-Christian polemic. And I think there's a little bit more of a proof to that as well, because at the top of this stuff, when it discusses that nobody actually knows where Moshe is buried, it says specifically that the Romans tried to discover where he was buried and it wasn't revealed to him. Like whatever it is that he saw, they saw was very confusing to them. And they still cannot identify where he was buried. And that's kind of the conclusion of all of the Moshe Rabbeinu Agadita. So you know, Rome is often a stand-in for Christianity. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, I think Anna's really onto something here. So I just wanted well, to thank you point for the that support. <laughs> I just wanted to point that out because it just, it's, it's, you know, like why bring in that story about Rome all of a sudden? Um, okay, I'm going to move on uh, to uh, what I thought was a few beautiful passages here that sort of end up, you know, round out the end of the Sagarata in our, our first parak. And it starts with the following, So Rabbi Chama, the son of Rabbi Hanina, says the following, So he's quoting here a pasuk from Devarim, chapter 13, verse 5, that says, After, uh, you know, uh, the Lord your God, you shall walk. Um, and the rest of pasuk talks about how you should fear God and keep his commandments and listen to him and serve him. And uh, uh, that's the rest of the, the, the pasuk. So the question he says is, how can a person actually follow the Shekhinah, right? The divine presence. Doesn't it say also in Devarim, in chapter 4, verse 24, right? That God is a devouring fire. In other words, how can somebody like actually become so close to God, right? And so he says something beautiful. Rather, a person should follow the attributes of God. Just as God made clothes for the naked, as it says in the Pasuk, and here they're quoting Genesis, uh, chapter 3, verse 21, when God makes clothes for Adam and Chava, for Adam and Eve. Right? God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. You should also clothe the naked. God visits the sick. So this is the famous passage in Bereshi chapter 18, verse 1, uh, where God appears to um, uh, Abraham right after he has a brit milah and is recovering. Uh, so you too should also visit the sick. God um, is, uh, God uh, comforts the, you know, those who are mourning. And again, this is a pasuk from Bereshit, chapter 25, verse 11, that after Abraham died, right, God blesses uh, Yitzchak, right, meaning that he, and that means he comforted him. So also you should comfort the mourners. God buries the dead. And here they're quoting the Pasuk from Devarim, chapter 34, verse 6, which mentions that God himself buried Moshe, right? That he buried him in the valley of Thai, uh, in the valley of Moab. 
right? You also should bury the dead. And I think this is a very beautiful passage because, you know, obviously, uh, especially when we learn Gemara, we see the value and the importance of halakha. But these are sort of like, I think, the, uh, you know, principles of being a religious person, the kindness, uh, you know, really imitating God's kind character traits that I don't personally, I don't feel necessarily gets enough emphasis sometimes in religious life or in when we talk about being religious people. And here he's really talking about like, you know, imitating these midot of God, that is the way that we actually walk after God. And then I'll just skip down a little bit more. And then we have um, Rabbi Simlai comes and he says, Dresh Rabbi Simlai, that the Torah begins and ends with acts of kindness, right? And the beginning one is, and he quotes that pasuk again, about God clothing Adam and Chava, and then ends with Gemilut Chasadim, and he quotes that pasuk again that we just quoted about God burying, um, about God burying Moshe. And so there's this emphasis here, as we sort of finish out this first parak about uh, you know how do we act in this world, right? How do we treat other people? What do we, does it mean to actually be a person who walks in the ways of God? And I think in a way. It's a fitting way to end the parak because, again, Sota is not a particularly uh, pleasant topic. And, you know, there's a lot of people at fault here. The, hus- the wife's not acting well. The husband's not acting well. You know, witnesses are coming to sort of like look out and see if the wife violates what the husband says. It, there's a lot of people behaving in ways where there's a lot of accusations. And I think the point of putting this here is to sort of say, like, if you're finding yourself in the situation of Sota, Nobody's behaving in this way where they're actually, you know, trying to follow the mito, trying to follow the character traits of God. Um, and so I, I, I think there's, you know, sort of a moral lesson that's being placed here as we continue and finish, you know, this, this, this first parak of Sota. I think that point about, uh, listen, I feel like there's a, a lot of gray area. That's the definition of the Sota story, right? And I feel like when in doubt... When you're in that gray area, those are maybe the best times to kind of look to the traits of God to say, okay, here I have to make a decision. How should I conduct myself? Um, I think it's a big burden to place on people to aim or to try in a serious way to behave like God at all times. Meaning, I think we're supposed to. I think we're supposed to yearn for that and strive for that. But I don't think it's like if it were feasible, then we would be God. We wouldn't be people. But in the, in the times of the gray areas, I think it becomes more feasible. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, there's an emphasis here to say, you know, when you're in those times of gray, th- this is what your mantra should be, you know, imitate God. All right. And I think with that, we're going to close out our first parent. Yes. And we're moving on to the second one. I'm going to just dive right in. I apologize in advance for my congestion here. It's an un- unexpected I guess what? Spring cold? Um, we have a new Mishnah because we have a new parak. So what happens is that the husband of the woman who he has brought to the court to become a sota, he would bring her offering, her meal offering. He would carry it in an, what's called here an, a, an Egyptian wicker basket was made of palm branches, and he would put 
that same meal offerings into her hands. She's going to hold it throughout the ritual. The goal seems to be to make her tired. And then, like, you know, you set her up to be fatigued, then maybe she will con- confess. And then if she confesses, then she won't have to drink the water. And, right, nobody is pushing for her to, right, just to review the Sota process is giving her this water that has the name of God dissolved into it that's going to assess or determine whether or not she's guilty. If she can come clean on her own beforehand, then she won't have to drink it. The goal here seems to be to uh, a direct confession is preferable over needing to erase the name of God, needing to put her through this ordeal, and it really would have been a terrible ordeal. Um on the other hand, if she's innocent, she's not going to want to, to she's not going to confess guilt for something that she didn't do. Um, so then the Mishnah says, you know, this this mincha, this meal offering is different from other meal offerings because in general, all of the meal offerings from their beginnings, from the time that they are consecrated till their endings, meaning till the time that they are offered, they're always in some kind of, it says, klisharet, some kind of service vessel. But this one, at the beginning, this begins at Egypt, in an Egyptian basket, in this service vessel. Now, the particulars of this service vessel are as yet unclear to us, per se. Right, We're going to have to discover what this is over time. But the fact that there's a distinction here is real, and it says that this minchaktaot, this this offering that the sota woman brings, is different from every day there were minachot that were brought. This is not that. This is the part of a process of determining what this woman's status is. All meaning all other meal offerings um, require oil and levona. Levona is frankincense. This one doesn't get either of them. All of the menachot, all of the meal offerings, meaning in general, meal offerings come from wheat. This one comes from barley. And then, right, the fact is, we know that the Korban Omer, Minchata Omer, Af Alpish, Ba'a Minasorin, He Haita Ba'a Geresh, Zoba'a Kemach. So, it happens to be that, yes, the Omer meal offering is also brought from barley, but that's brought as um, its high-quality meal, right? It's it's already um, it's brought as groats, groats from the barley, whereas the meal offering of the sota is like a, just like just from the flour before it's ever um, – it, it doesn't – it's a different level of processing. Rabbi Gamliel Omer, Kishim Shema Seba Sebehima. So Rabbi Gamaliel has a, a, there's a little bit of a slur here, right? Just as her actions were animalistic, the actions of an animal, uh, meaning being in seclusion with a man who is not her husband, so too, her offering, the thing that she brings, is the animal food, meaning she's bringing barley and not wheat. Now, I don't know. I use barley when it's not Pesach. I use barley in a in a very regular way, certainly in Cholent and all kinds of things. But there is a distinction here in saying that wheat is the higher level of food, and I think it it's a harder crop to grow, and so on. So the the distinction here or the slur here against her is still um, 
it's in place, even if nowadays we might relate to barley flour a little bit differently than they did then. Um, okay. The Gemara, later on this stuff, the Gemara is going to delve into this issue of the um, of the oil and the frankincense. And it's an interesting discussion in the interest of time, especially given the season. We're going to leave that to you to read on your own. Um, it's you know, we'll, we may address it further when it comes up again, but we'll see. Tanya, but now the Gemara is going to address the beginning of this Mishnah. Tanya, Abba, Chanin, Omer, Bishum, Reb, Lezer, Chokach, Lama, Kedeli, Aga. Why is it that we, why is so much done, right? That the husband carries this basket, but then he gives it to her, and she's supposed to hold it, and she's supposed to hold it in order to fatigue her. Why is all this part of the process? It's like, you would think there's enough going on. So the idea is that she will, you know, retract her protestations of innocence and, and confess her guilt. So the, the Gemara here says the Torah is protecting. Look how far the Torah goes to make sure that the people who violate his will like the Sota, who secluded herself with a person she was warned against, right? So all the more so, we're going to be protective. God will be protective of people who are working to do his will wholeheartedly and in everything that they do. Meaning, the idea is that it is protective to facilitate her confession instead of um, pushing her to drink this water and suffer the consequences. Umimai mishim how do we know that the Torah is working to protect her, right? And not, you know, what is that? How do we know that that's the motivation here in giving her the basket to fatigue her? Maybe the goal is just to make sure that the name of God would not be erased. How is that a mercy for the Sota woman? Because Remlezer's opinion, right, was that he would, the Kohen would first give her the water to drink, and only afterwards he would sacrifice the offering. Right? If the concern was about the scroll, if the concern was about the scroll, then that would no longer be relevant. right? Because it's already been erased. It's already been erased in the Mesota, in the water of the Sota woman, even before the carbon is brought. Meaning, so we know that the efforts to make her tired here, and therefore confess, before she actually has to drink it, Right, are are a protection of her because it's not it's not some like abstract or or even um, a holy enterprise to prevent the name of God from being erased, but to prevent her from having to drink it, and that is um, again that is to protect her. So I just think you know we've been struggling with sort of with how to view the sota, and this is sort of I think our first most explicit passage that's empathic towards the Sota that recognizes what a horrible situation she's been placed in. Um, that what a horrible situation she's placed herself in. Okay, that's fair. I'll, 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 Meaning, I'll accept that that's the way to say it. Yeah. Because again, right, the, I, don't wanna, I don't want to malign her worse, right? It's that the first seclusion we can say was accidental. Once she's been warned, Either she's blown off the warning or she doesn't, you know, either she doesn't care or she was negligent and whatever. But her her higher level of protecting herself against this happening 
Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP and our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 